Good morning, everyone. Oh, thanks for saying it back. Uh, my name is Nick, and I'm one of the pastors here at APA, and I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning. And man, what an amazing weekend ha- it has been. Anybody else? Yeah, what a great weekend. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about you, but my wife is somebody who, um, no, that's saying dies is the wrong word, dies during winter, not quite. Uh, my, my wife craves hot weather like no other, and she becomes a totally different person when it's hot out, and so I had a delightful weekend with a vibrant, excited wife. <laughs> It's all, it was also our last free weekend before, uh, before baby McAllister is expected to come, and so uh, we're excited for that, and we, we decided that we wanted to like really make our son Liam feel excited and loved, and so yesterday we had our date day with Liam, we went to the pool and went swimming, we went and got pizza, and then we went to banter for ice cream, so... If I'm just really exuberant and happy, that's why. Because it's been sunny this weekend. I got to spend a a whole day with my kid. And I didn't write any of this stuff down, so I'm going to get back to what we're supposed to be talking about. Today, we get to look at Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. This is a story about strife between siblings. Now, how many of you have siblings? Okay, hands up. Okay. Oh, no, keep your hands up. This is important. Everybody look around. See, there's a lot of people with siblings. Now, of those who have had siblings, how many of you have had strife with your siblings? How is it that more hands went up? (laughs) I don't know how that works. And then, okay, of those left, how many are the eldest sibling? Oh, there we go. These are my people, fellow eldest children. You understand the struggle of Genesis 4, that younger siblings have it easy. It's just true. It's it's just true. I didn't have anyone to show me the ropes of how to do well in school, how to talk to girls, which parent I should ask for ice cream for. I had to figure it out all by myself. And don't get me started on things like curfew. Like... My curfew in high school was 9 p.m. The only exception was if I was at work, and I remember being in grade 12, wanting to celebrate graduating with my friends. Keep in mind, this is a good Christian group of friends. We weren't partying or anything like that, and I needed to be home by 11 p.m. I felt like I was on top of the world. I got to stay out so late, and then it turned out I was the first one to leave by a long shot. But this is where it gets worse. Three years later, my little brother. He got to stay out all night if he wanted. Just three years later. It was an outrageous injustice, and I'm still a little bit mad about it. And this is the kind of injustice that we see in Genesis chapter 4. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Pastor Dave asked me to preach on this chapter. You see, he's a youngest sibling. He doesn't get it, but don't worry. But all joking aside, in Genesis 4, we see a growing family. And we see the struggle that comes from this growth. 
But rather than use this chapter as an excuse to lament the injustices of my childhood, my hope is that we would look into this passage of Scripture with the same viewpoint that we've held all throughout this series. That Genesis isn't a simple textbook or history book whose sole goal is to relay a bunch of facts about how the world was created. Because at its heart, Genesis is a story. But not just any story, it's the story of all stories. Genesis is designed as a story that makes sense of everything. It answers life's biggest questions of who are we? Why is the world the way that it is? Who is God and what is our purpose? And so as we delve into this passage today, let's intentionally keep these questions front of mind and watch how the story of Cain and Abel is so much more than a tale of two brothers because it's meant to help answer some of life's biggest questions. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 4. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation, and we'll also have it up on the screen for you as well. Chapter 4 takes place right after chapter 3. Shocking how that works, I know. Uh, But in chapter 3, we saw the fall, where the serpent convinces Eve to try the fruit of the tree of knowledge, the one thing that God told Adam and Eve not to do. Adam eats the fruit too, and this act of disobedience results in Adam and Eve being exiled from the Garden of Eden. Chapter 4 is our first glimpse into what happened after Adam and Eve are exiled. So let's begin in verse 1. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. Because apparently that's the first thing you do when you're exiled. You make a baby. And I know none of you came to church hoping to talk about Adam and Eve having sexual relations, but it's actually important for us to know. Not just because it's in the Bible, but it tells us that Adam and Eve have started living out God's command to fill the earth. God didn't create their babies from dust. They were born to their parents, just like you and me. And humanity starts to expand. And so when someone asks you what you learned today in church, you can say, I learned about Adam and Eve making babies. It's super important. Okay? You can't have a... Yeah, if somebody asks you, you can't say, I don't remember. You say, making babies. That's what we talked about. So continuing on, because that's a ramble, uh, <laughs> they, they, had, they had sexual relations, she became pregnant, and when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, I don't know about you, but the immediate question that comes to mind when I read this passage is, what was wrong with Cain's offering? What did he need to do differently? Does God have something against farmers, or did Cain give God like a bad apple or something? And you know what? We're not alone in wondering these questions. This is something that has been debated by scholars, pastors, and Christians for centuries. But as we look to better understand the purpose of this story, I think it's actually important that we don't dive into the details of why people 
think Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted? Because the reality is, the answer isn't provided for us. It's not that this detail was forgotten. It's that the reason Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted isn't the focus of this story. This is clear even in verses 4 and 5 where it speaks of God accepting or not accepting the offerings. Look at the wording. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but but he did not accept Cain and his gift. See, the emphasis is placed on the person, not on the gift. If the sacrifice was what was important, it would have mentioned the gifts and skipped over the people. But the focus isn't on the offering. Whether it was accepted or not, the emphasis is on the person because God cares more about the person. And in this case, the person that Genesis 4 focuses on is angry. Cain sees his younger brother uh, is accepted, but that he is not. And his response is of one of anger and dejection. Now, being an older brother myself, I imagine that uh, that the anger Cain feels is twofold. One, he's probably angry with his little brother. Cain is the firstborn, and as we continue on in Genesis, we see that the position of firstborn is special. The firstborn is given unique rights and responsibilities. If the father is away or sick, the firstborn takes over leadership of the family. And when the father dies, the firstborn cares for his widowed mother and his unmarried sister. But the firstborn also receives special privileges. The firstborn receives a double portion of the family inheritance. The firstborn receives the the best blessings from the father. And the firstborn is the one who carries on the family line. In short, the firstborn is the man. It's a coveted position. We see this in the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25, where Jacob, the younger brother, tricks Esau into selling him his birthright, his special firstborn inheritance. And then later in chapter 27, Jacob steals Esau's special blessing. Everyone wants to be the firstborn. The younger sibling is an afterthought, at best an insurance policy in case the firstborn passes unexpectedly. Cain is the firstborn, the one whose right is blessing and acceptance. And yet his younger brother Abel usurps this blessing and acceptance. Abel takes what Cain believes is rightfully his, and so Cain's response of anger towards his younger sibling isn't surprising. This develops into a theme seen all throughout Scripture, where God honors, blesses, and accepts the younger sibling instead of the firstborn like everyone expects. I said that his anger was twofold, and because I believe that not only was Cain mad at Abel, but he's probably mad with God. We're not doing what Cain expects. I mean, think about it. Cain comes to God with a gift, and yet it isn't accepted. And it's clear that it isn't because God just isn't a gift person. He he accepted Abel and his gift. This would be so frustrating. I can imagine Cain's thought process. God, you blessed me with the ability to raise crops. I used my blessing for you, and still you don't accept it. If I were in Cain's shoes, I would struggle with the same feelings. The feelings of anger, dejection, and frustration. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever given someone a gift only to have them either disregard it or not accept it? 
I won't name any names because that's not healthy or helpful in this particular situation, but I've been there. I've been the one offering a gift only to have it thrown back in my face. Have you ever been there with God? Were you just trying to serve him? Just trying to give him your best, and yet your offering seems to fall on deaf ears. I was thinking about that this week, and a story from my childhood came to mind. Why are you laughing already, babe? I haven't said anything. <laughs> now, I, I grew up playing a lot of street hockey. Anybody else? Street hockey? Yeah? There we go. Street hockey. So much fun. Me and my brother, we would gather all of the kids from the community. We'd pull out our hockey nets and our hockey gear, and we would play hockey for hours. Seriously, from the time I was like four or five years old to the time I was 12, I played street hockey for two to three hours every day. And you know what? When you spend that much time playing street hockey, you quickly develop some skills. And so I, I became the one who was the best in our little complex, which was a big deal. There were a lot of us, like 20, so I was the best of 20. And I remember thinking, man, I'm really good at this. But wait, it gets better. Then I remember going to elementary school. And we had this floor hockey tournament, and I remember showing up, and I was just dancing circles around everyone. I was so good at hockey, and I was like, man, obviously God has gifted me with this ability. This is a God-given gift. There's no way my parents could have produced this on their own. And so I began to think and dream about how I could use this gift for God's glory, how I could go to the NHL and I could make a difference. I could give so much money to the church, it would be this beautiful thing. But you know, there's a problem in that the NHL plays on ice instead of the road. And I didn't really know how to skate, but I, I figured there's no way these, these skills aren't going to transfer. So I remember begging my parents, asking, hey, can I please play hockey? Can I play ice hockey? Can I play roller hockey? Something. I need to use this gift. And for a variety of reasons, playing hockey just wasn't an option for our family. And I remember feeling just so dejected. I remember feeling angry, angry at my parents, angry at God, because this gift that I had been given, I wasn't able to use it. And that anger is something that I carried with me for many, many years. I remember being in high school in gym class, and we played floor hockey, and there I am, again, dancing circles around all these people who are playing competitive hockey. I'm like, God, you really screwed this one up. I actually played floor hockey like a few years ago for the first time in a really long time. And I'm not going to lie, there were flashes of brilliance and greatness. Uh, but there was also a whole lot of other realizations. Like one, I was very out of shape. Man, it was not as easy as I remembered it being as a kid. And then the second realization is that I wasn't sure how good at hockey I actually was as I was facing off against a six foot six inch farmer who played competitive hockey throughout school and like man he would take a shot and the whole gym would just shake and I'm like maybe I'm not as good as I was but in, in many ways I felt what Cain felt I felt that anger I felt that dejection because I just wanted to use my gift for God but it wasn't accepted and so I felt like I wasn't accepted and so as we continue on in chapter 4, we see God address Cain's anger. Verse 6, 
Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. God doesn't call lightning down from the sky to smite Cain and his anger. There's no punishment for Cain's anger because Cain's initial response of anger and dejection isn't wrong. It's, it's not a sin. It's a natural human response. Most of us would have the exact same reaction if we were in his shoes. So rather than dole out punishment, God provides a challenge and an invitation. Do what's right. Watch out for sin. He tells Cain exactly what he needs to do in order to be accepted. God encourages Cain to take responsibility, to be proactive in subduing sin. And in so doing, uh, God makes it clear there is hope for Cain. It's not, that he, uh, it's not that Cain has blown it, that he'll never be accepted. God hasn't chosen Ab- Abel over Cain. This isn't about a sibling rivalry. God wants to accept both of them. God wants Cain to be accepted. And he shows Cain exactly what he needs to do in order to be accepted. But the reality is, there's a disconnect between what Cain thinks he should give to God and what God desires from Cain. Let me say that again. There's a disconnect between what Cain thinks he should give to God and what God desires from Cain. And so what ends up making Cain so angry is that God does not operate on Cain's system of values. And so Cain is faced with a choice, either to dwell in his anger or to get curious about what God desires from him. And at its core, this choice reveals what is most important to Cain. Because by responding to God in obedience, he affirms that God's ways are more important than his ways. He sets God at the center of his life, and he recognized that God is God and he is not. But by dwelling in his anger, he rejects taking responsibility for God not accepting him and his gift. He sets himself at the center of his life, and he dismisses the belief that God is just and that God loves him. So will Cain choose to orient his life around God or around himself? I mean, sadly, Cain doesn't want to play by God's rules and decides to take justice into his own hands. Verse 8. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain takes justice into his own hands. And before we go judging him, saying, well, I would never do that, this sounds exactly the, like the kind of thing that we would do. Sure, we might not go around murdering our siblings, but we love the concept of taking justice into our own hands. Think about it. So many of the TV shows, stories, movies that we watch and read are built upon this concept of righting a wrong ourselves when the system 
fails for us. The whole premise of superhero stories is built on this, that if only we had some power to make things right ourselves. I mean, that's what Batman does. He does the dirty work that Gotham's police force can't do. And so we glorify this concept of making things right by any means necessary. But as Christians, we believe in a just God, a God who has power and authority over the entire universe and who will one day right every wrong. And so when we take justice into our own hands, again, we place ourselves at the center of our lives as the ultimate authority of right and wrong. And Paul speaks of the danger that comes from this in his letter to the Romans. Romans 12, verse 17 to 21. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Now, to be clear, God desires for us to pursue justice. We see this in Paul's command to conquer evil by doing good. And it's a refrain heard many times throughout Scripture. I think of Isaiah 1, verse 17, that says, Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of widows. But it's pretty clear that the justice we are to pursue is not our own. We are called to help defend, and fight for the marginalized. But this isn't what Cain has done. He has taken justice into his own hands, and it has led to sin and death. This becomes a recurring theme throughout Genesis, where the attempt attempt and failure of human effort in obtaining a blessing that only God can give. And so, just like his parents, Cain has sinned and now must reap the consequences. It's actually remarkable how many similarities there are between Cain and his parents. I think the author of Genesis did this on purpose, setting up parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 4. First, we see that in both chapters, it is God who seeks out the sinner. Adam and Eve hid, and yet God seeks them out. Cain continues about his life, and God seeks him out to question him. The second thing we see is that in both stories, God offers the chance to confess. Now, Adam and Eve didn't do a great job of this, but they did confess. They just ended up playing the blame game, blaming each other and blaming the serpent. But Cain does even worse. He straight up lies to God. He even goes so far as to make his response a bit of a joke, a little bit snarky. When asked where his brother is, the shepherd, uh, he asked why he would be his, gar- his brother's guardian. In other words, why would he be a shepherd for the shepherd? But God knows exactly what's going on, and he gives justice. Cain has ended the life of his brother, and now Cain will be cut off from the ground, his source of life. Just like for Adam and Eve, Cain's blessing becomes the source of his curse. For Adam, his blessing to rule over creation becomes a hard and difficult struggle. For Eve, her blessing of producing children is now done in pain. 
And for Cain, his blessing of farming becomes a hard struggle. Faced with this terrible news, Cain cries out to God. Verse 13, Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. As Cain is overwhelmed by the consequences of his actions, of his sin, we get a further glimpse of who God is. First off, we see that God is just. He doesn't go back on his curse. He gives Cain exactly what he deserves. But we also see God is merciful. Because even after Cain murders his brother, God still chooses to protect him. I love how Daryl Johnson puts it. Cain gets grace, unexpected, unmerited, scandalous grace. And here we see another parallel to chapter 3. Cain receives a mark, a reminder of sin, but also a reminder of his protection. Just as Adam and Eve received clothes from God, a reminder of their sin, but also a reminder that God still provides for them. This comparison between chapter 3 and 4 is important because it sets up the understanding that sin has become a pattern for humanity. Adam and Eve sinned, and now their offspring sin as well. And what chapter 4 shows us is that the problem of sin isn't getting any better. For Cain's sin is premeditated. It's carried out without the trickery of the serpent. And when confronted with it, he denies any wrongdoing and pushes back against his punishment. Things have gone from bad to worse. And the rest of the chapter just reiterates this. Verse 17. Cain had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son named Erad. Erad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael. Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, before I continue on, quick pro tip. If you're ever reading scripture and you need to do so out loud and you come across a name you don't know how to pronounce, you just pronounce it with confidence and nobody will ever know the difference. Seriously, I, I can see Mark Cox is, is uh, burying his head in his hands. I'm sorry. But how am I supposed to know how to pronounce Methushael? I'm sure I got it right. Anyways, Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, also known as the land of wandering. And in this place, we see Cain founding a city. This is actually a really important event because it marks a major shift for humanity. In the Garden of Eden, God provided everything that Adam and Eve needed. And even in the lifestyle of a wanderer, uh, it's similar, where they still relied on God to provide through crops and livestock. But building a city is completely different. It is the first worldly construct that isn't built around God. It's an attempt to go through life without the help of God, a first step in the pursuit of self-reliance. With the advent of the city, we see great strides forward in industry and culture as well. Verse 19, Lamech married two women, 
The first was named Ada, the second was Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raised livestock and live in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and flute. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Nema. Again, just say with confidence, and it just comes out, and you sound like you know what you're saying. But we see the founding of the city, this attempted independence from God, and, and we see Jabal innovate agriculture. We see Jubal develop the arts, and we see Tubal-Cain pioneer craftsmanship. In many ways, Cain and his descendants are fulfilling the command of Genesis 1.28 to fill the land and subdue it, and yet something is missing. The city life isn't oriented around God, and in that place, sin abounds even more. It's almost as if humanity is committed to moving farther and farther away from God. Verse 23, one day Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Now, initially, uh, when I was considering what to call this sermon, uh, the, the title that came to mind was Sex, Murder, and Rock and Roll, because that's really what we have going on in our text. Adam and Eve making babies, Cain murdering his brother, and now we have Lamech writing a classic rock song for his two wives. It even rhymes in the original Hebrew language. And this song is all about how Lamech takes justice into his own hands, just like his great-great-great-grandfather, Cain, except that it has somehow gotten even worse. Lamech proudly brags that he isn't satisfied with an eye for an eye. He doesn't even want justice. He just wants vengeance and power. If someone hurts him, he wants to kill. See, left to our own pursuit of self-reliance, uh, sin becomes the norm, and it seems that the world just keeps getting darker and darker. It's not unlike the age and culture that we live in, but the amazing news is our passage ends with hope. Verse 25, Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. When Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. Adam and Eve had two sons. One was murdered, and the other was the murderer, whose family line departed from the presence of God, pursuing self-reliance, ultimately living lives of sin. And it appears as though sin is set to dominate the whole world, but then God intervenes. God grants Adam and Eve another son, Seth, in place of the one they had lost, in place of the one who had been accepted by God. And from Seth comes a new chance for humanity, a chance to live outside of the garden, but still to pursue God, and that's just what they do. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. 
And from Seth's family comes Noah and Abraham and King David and eventually the Son of God himself, Jesus, the one who comes to restore creation to how it was meant to be, to fix what was broken in the Garden of Eden. This is what God granted to Adam and Eve. So that's Genesis chapter 4. The story of Cain and Abel. It's a story about death and darkness of the world descending into sin, but it's also a story of hope and light, of God making a way forward, of God showing love to his creation, of God not abandoning us even when sin is in abundance. Now, at the start of our time together, I said that I wanted us to keep in mind the purpose of Genesis, that it's the story of all stories, and it helps us make sense of life's biggest questions. Who are we? Who is God? Why is the world the way that it is, and what's our purpose? And so today, I want to end by reflecting on these questions and asking ourselves what Genesis 4 tells us about these things. So let's start with, who are we? We are part of God's creation. He created us. He made us. And this is important because it drives home the point that we aren't the center of the universe. Even if our human tendency is towards selfishness, we are created. We are not the creator. God is God and we are not. And Genesis 4 makes clear our identity and challenges us not to think too much of ourselves. Who are we? We are God's creation. What does Genesis 4 tell us about the world? Well, as the world is separated from God, it leads to a pursuit of self-reliance, an intentional decision to live in such a way that we don't need God. And so as the world pursues self-reliance and withdraws from God's presence, the ramifications are huge. It ultimately leads to sin and to death. And when sin isn't addressed, it just gets worse and worse and worse. This is the world that we live in a world that isn't oriented around or reliant on the presence of God. And it's not a surprise. Genesis 4 makes clear this is the world that we live in. What does it tell us about God? Well, we we see in Genesis 4 that God's desire is to accept everyone. I'm going to say that again. God's desire is to accept everyone. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, God's desire is to accept you. Even as Cain isn't accepted, God spells out what he needs to do. He does all that he can to see Cain redeemed. But in the end, God allows us free choice. And in the midst of that decision, God needs to be just. He's just and fair. His punishments fit the crime. He wants to see all wrongs righted. He is the ultimate judge, the one who brings justice to the world. But even in God's justice, there is mercy. Our God is merciful, extending grace and love that we don't deserve. Because while he is just, he is also loving. And he loves you and me. He loves his children. He would do anything for us. Which leads to our final snapshot of God, that he always has a plan. Even when we screw up, even when things look hopeless, 
God has a plan to see his children restored to him. And nowhere is this more evident than in the life and death of Jesus Christ. God is good. He longs to have relationship with us. He longs to accept us. He is just. He is merciful. Merciful. He is loving. And he always has a plan. And what does Genesis 4 tell us about our purpose? What do we do in the midst of all of this? Well, first, it tells us that we are meant to be accepted by God. To do good and not be mastered by sin. To not be those who take justice into our own hands, but to trust God to be the just judge. To trust God to give blessings as he sees fit. And from that place, we are meant to worship to orient our lives around him, to intentionally rid ourselves of our own selfishness, our own obsession with ourselves, and to place God as the center of our lives. We are God's children, living in a broken world, loved by a just and merciful God, designed to worship him in all that we do. That is who we are. to respond. Other than this, I just want to make space for God's truth to sink in. This is a long passage. It takes a while to get through, but there's such important truth uh, that we need to be reminded of, of who God is, who we are, and what our purpose is. And so I just want to spend five minutes sitting in that truth. Rachel and the team are going to lead us in the goodness of God, a song that declares many of these things that we've learned about. And if you want to sing along to those songs to remember, then sing along. If you want to sit in your seat and just think and process what we've been talking about, do that. Or if you want to pray, we're going to have our prayer team up to the front. I guess I should invite our prayer team. Prayer team, feel free to come to the front. And, and whether it's praying about something that we talked about this morning or whether it's something totally different where you just need God's intervention in your life, come forward and pray because coming to him, drawing close to him is always the right answer. So we're going to spend five minutes and then, and then I'll come back to close us off. But I'd invite you to enter in, participate in the sign that this... Uh, this time. Don't just check out going on your phone. Uh, spend time thinking, singing, praying, dwelling on the fact that God is good and that we are his. Amen.